Happy Mother's Day. Um, we are once again in the book of Genesis, as you can see from the slide and the screen behind me. Um, we're looking at the life of Abraham. Pastor Ben will conclude the series next week with Genesis 24 and 25. Uh, today we are looking at Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is probably the most well-known story from Abraham's life. And for good reason. It's a dramatic story that packs a serious theological punch. There are few instances in all of scripture that better demonstrate what God is like, what God, what is required of man, and how both of those things culminate in Jesus Christ. But before we get to all of that, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us here as orphans, um, but you've given us your spirit to help us. And one of the things your spirit, the Holy Spirit does, is to guide us into the truth. And your word is truth. Uh, So Father, as we turn our attention most directly to your word this morning, I pray that you would um, open our eyes to see what you have. uh, Open our ears that we could hear what you have to say to us and that you would soften our hearts, um, and in all those things, that you would make us to be the people you've made us to be, and that you would be working on us uh, through your word. Father, I pray that um, wherever we've been uh, this morning, uh, this past week, um, whatever we're dealing with, uh, that we would lay it at your feet, and knowing that in your word and with you there is something for us. And there's goodness and there is life. So help us see the beauty and hear the beauty of your word. And um, I I just pray that you would shed your light on us this morning through it. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning I'm going to begin by reading the text. And then we're going to work our way back through it. So we're going to read Genesis 22, 1 through 19. And I think that your listening, understanding experience was going to be helped if you have a Bible in front of you. But there will be the words on the screen. And frankly, you get Genesis 22 open if you have a Bible, um, if you have it on your phone, and leave it there. Because we're going to be referring to it all morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can find, hopefully, a Bible under one of the seats in front of you. And the only people in the front row are the kinds of people who probably have Bibles at church, if we're being honest. So (laughs) um, let's go ahead and read Genesis 22, starting with verse one. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, 
my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. To begin with, God tests Abraham. If we're going to understand this passage, this story, we cannot miss this very important fact. These words set the tone for everything that follows. God tests Abraham. Now, what is a test? Depending upon your age, tests are either associated with teachers or with doctors. And for that reason, tests carry some emotional baggage you hear the word test and your body tightens it contracts it's bracing for 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 trouble you compare that to a word like cupcake cupcake see you laugh cupcake is a happy word if you say the word cupcake you will smile if you say the word test you do not smile it is not a happy word but the bible says that we are blessed when we face trials James 1, 2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How are we blessed when we are tested? How is this testing from God a blessing for Abraham? Well, it matters that we understand, biblically speaking, what a test is. The word test originated with metalworking. A test was conducted on a precious metal to remove impurities. So, for example, pure gold is not really found in the wild. It's found mixed with other metals and materials. And so what they do is they take that gold and they heat it at extremely, extremely high temperatures. And as it melts, it separates away from the impurities and it is refined. What's left behind in the test 
is the pure, precious gold. Now, this practice of refining gold and silver with a fiery test is an ancient one. They knew about it in the times of the Bible. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Psalm 66.10 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. And then Job 23.10 says, But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. The test is not an evaluation. At least not primarily. It's not a chance to prove yourself. At at least not exactly. The test, a test, is a chance to be purified. Zechariah 13.9 says this. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. The result of the fiery test and refinement of Zechariah is a people who call upon the name of the Lord and belong to him. The New Testament is in agreement with this understanding of testing. We read James 1, 2. This is James 1, 3, and 4. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. The test is a purifying fire to remove imperfections that leaves behind the precious jewel of faith, which leads to our salvation. And that's the result of Abraham's test. In Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14, see, I told you to have your Bibles, leave them open to Genesis 22. In verses 13 and 14, Abraham worships God with a burnt sacrifice and calls on his name, declaring that the Lord is the one who provides. God purifies Abraham. And coming this far in Genesis, we can see that God, that Abraham rather, needed to be purified. That's not to say that he was a train wreck, that Abraham was a scoundrel, that he was the worst he could possibly be. There is much to commend about Abraham. There is much that has been commended about Abraham. He obeyed the word of the Lord in Genesis 12. When God told him to go where I will show you, he packed up his things and he went. In Genesis 15 verse 6, we're told that Abraham was counted righteous for his faith in God. Several times over, Abraham calls upon the Lord in faith and worship. But Abraham was still learning the lesson of Genesis 22. The Lord provides. The impurities of his self-reliance needed to be melted in the furnace of testing. Remember that Abraham lied about his relationship with Sarah, his wife. Not once, but twice. In Genesis 12 and 20, he claims that Sarah is his sister, which is technically true, but not his wife, which is most certainly false. Abraham was afraid that he would be killed if people knew he was Sarah's husband. Instead of depending upon God to provide, Abraham tried to rely on his own cleverness. And then there's the whole thing with Hagar. When God seemed slow to keep his promise to give Abraham offspring... Abraham thought he might speed things up and take matters into his own hands. 
in Genesis 16, encouraged by his wife, Sarah, Abraham takes their servant, Hagar, and conceives a child. They have a son. His name is Ishmael. And interestingly, the son is never condemned. To the contrary, Ishmael is blessed. But this was not the way it was meant to be. Once again, Abraham was relying upon himself rather than trusting the Lord to provide. Again, in Genesis 18, Abraham fails to trust in God. God tells Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom for their wickedness. And Abraham pleads with God to spare the city if God can find even ten righteous people. And God, in his patience and kindness, accepts Abraham's terms. But when God sent his angels into the city, they found what God already knew was there. There were not ten righteous people among them. There was only Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's family. And their righteousness was dubious at best. Lot, you might remember, offered his own daughters to the savage mob. Lot's wife lingered over her love for the city and perished with it in dramatic fashion. And then Lot's daughters, they get Lot drunk and they commit incest with their father out of despair. Does any of that sound righteous to you? (laughs) So Abraham questions God and he questions his knowledge and his integrity and his judgment concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, we we read this story and we see the compassion of Abraham, which should be commended. But when I read this in light of Genesis 22, it's hard to believe that this is not at some level Abraham questioning and not trusting God. See, because when we get to Genesis 22, Abraham doesn't question God. He doesn't argue. Why? Why doesn't Abraham argue with God when God has asked him to do something so terribly painful? It's because Abraham learned not to question God's judgment at Sodom. He saw that God knew what he was doing. He saw that God had good judgment that God knew more than he knew, and that God was, in fact, righteous. Now, all these things have to factor in into how we understand the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. God was testing Abraham to purify him. And what needed purged from Abraham was his inability to rely on God, his inability to trust God to provide, his inability to trust that God would be just and good. And so in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham and he turns up the heat. Abraham will either be purified or he will be found to be fool's gold. Up to this point in Abraham's story, there always seems to have been a step or a direction for Abraham to take in every trial that wasn't exactly immoral. It wasn't exactly disobedient, but it wasn't right. It wasn't the way things were supposed to be. But when God commanded Abraham to offer his son Isaac, there were only two possibilities. There was no room for misunderstanding. Abraham would either disobey completely and hold back his son, or he would utterly depend upon God to do the impossible. 
Now, when God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, there was no delay. Genesis 22.3 explains Abraham's reaction. He rose early in the morning and he prepared his things so that he could go to the place that God had told him. Abraham did not waste time. When you know the right thing to do, do it. Don't delay. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God gave Abraham a command, and Abraham obeyed as soon, as quickly as he could. But Abraham's obedience wasn't a flash in the pan. Genesis 22.4 says that it wasn't until the third day they saw the place from afar. Abraham had journeyed for three days, never wavering from his obedience to the Lord's command, never wavering from his confidence in the Lord's power to keep his promise to make Isaac into a great nation. I think it's important for us to know that God has made far greater promises to you, to me, to his church. He has promised to us an eternal kingdom of perfect justice where we will feast and drink without money or price. He has promised to to us, to those who believe, that we will inherit a kingdom where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, reigns. And the Lord is faithful to keep his promises, whether our journey is three days long, like Abraham's, or 80 years. Now Abraham, having seen the location lifting along the horizon... He tells the two young men who are traveling with them to stop. But that's not all. In Genesis 22, 5, he says that Abraham will take Isaac. They will go and worship. And then both of them will return. It reminds me of a story from the Gospels. Um, Jesus and the disciples get caught in a violent storm at sea. And Jesus is sleeping. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus wakes up and he calms the storm. And everyone's amazed. They are, who is this guy? What, what is going on here? Uh, but the way I think it's, it, it's related or the similarity I see is that uh, before they ever got into the boat, Jesus said, let us go to the other side. Jesus knew they were going to make it, storm or no storm. When Jesus says something, it's as good as done. When God speaks, it happens. And so Abraham was confident that somehow, some way, he would return with Isaac. Now, it's about at this point you wonder if Isaac isn't getting a funny feeling about all of this. When Isaac asks about the lamb in verse 7, you can hardly blame him. Sharp kid. What good is a sacrifice without the sacrifice? Abraham's response is telling Not only for Abraham's own convictions, but for the shape of the rest of the Bible. Abraham hopes for and anticipates a substitute. Genesis 22.8 says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham is finally depending on God to provide. Now, I can't help but wonder about the impact that that particular moment must have had on Isaac. Genesis 22 is Abraham's story. We're told little about Isaac, but Isaac witnessed his father 
utterly depend upon God. Yes, it is, it's strange and, and different what I'm about to say, because Isaac himself, his own life was in the balance. But do people in your life ever see you and hear you relying on God to provide? I fear that far too many of us, myself included, are so skilled, so good at managing our lives that we don't need God. We don't find ourselves in situations where we desperately need God. In fact, we avoid such, such situations. Like Abraham, we trust in ourselves and our own clever schemes. And in the process, we rob ourselves of the purifying power of God's testing. And we rob others of that test testimony in our lives. When's the last time you told someone God would provide and you not only meant it, because I know we have most people in this room who, who know that and believe that, but it's not that you only meant it, but deep in your soul, you know that you needed it. That the thing you were trying to do, the thing you needed, was impossible without God. Now praise God. Praise God that we do not bounce from test to test, from trial to trial, hardship to hardship, impossibility to impossibility. But praise God that he does not spare us from testing and discipline to purify us and make us more like him. Now, Abraham, Abraham has gotten things ready. The altar has been built. Isaac has been bound and laid on the altar. And as Abraham takes his knife to slaughter his, his son, the son of promise, a voice from heaven cries out to stop him. And I imagine Abraham was all too eager to stop. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram, a substitute like Abraham anticipated. He takes the ram and he offers it to God. Abraham has passed the test. Actually, it's probably better, more accurate to say that Abraham has passed through the test. He's been purified of his self-reliance. And with no other options but to run or remain, he has learned that the Lord will provide Something I, I want to mention, it's never occurred to me before I was uh, looking at this passage this week, but um, Isaac was meant to be a burnt offering. Um, I don't say this to be grotesque. I'm making this point to show the radical nature of Abraham's obedience and confidence. I, I will leave the finer points up to your imagination. But the knife was only the beginning of the sacrifice. Isaac would be killed right away, but that was not the whole ordeal. A burnt offering was one that was completely consumed by fire. Yet, in Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19, we find that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham wasn't expecting God to wake Isaac up from a peaceful, sleep-like death. Isaac was meant to be a burnt offering. Now, earlier in the journey, Abraham was depending on God to send a substitute. 
But with the knife drawn and fire at hand, he's now depending on God for resurrection. And in Christ, we receive both. Jesus Christ is our substitute. The offering of obedience and atonement to cover for our sins that we rightfully owe to our maker are beyond what we can do. We cannot pay back our debts with the Lord. But Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, suffered and died in our place. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ paid the price to set us free. He stood in our place. He went as the offering for us. He took on our sins in death so that we might receive righteousness and live. But he didn't just die. Christ has been risen to new life. This is what Romans 6, 3 through 5 tells us. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Given the circumstances of this morning and the baptism that took place, this passage is particularly poignant. When we share in his death with Christ as our substitute, we also share in his resurrection. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in God's power to raise the dead. And if you believe in God's power to raise the dead, then what is stopping you from living like Abraham? It's true that this passage, like every passage in the Old Testament, in all of Scripture, is meant to point us to Christ. And we see him, right? We see him in Genesis 22. But it's no good if we gaze upon Jesus as we see him in his word and then walk away and forget what he looks like. What we read is meant to invoke a response. God's word is meant to form us as a peculiar people. Looking in scripture for examples to follow is not moralizing. Trying to live in alignment with God is not legalism. Following in the steps of faith before us, set before us by Abraham, trusting in God to provide is not trusting in your works to save yourself. See, we are saved by faith in Christ, but that faith in Christ will bear fruit. We see Jesus. We can't walk away and forget what he looks like. So the appropriate response to the sacrifice, sacrifice of Isaac is to go and do likewise. To see and recognize God as the God who provides. Who has given us his very own son as a substitute and has guaranteed us victory over death with the power of resurrection. Like Abraham, 
you climb the hill of sacrifice and death to which God has called you, wherever it might be. And you trust God to take care of the rest when you get there. No, of course, uh, God has not asked you to sacrifice your son. But what he has required of each one of us is not really so different. When God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he was asking for something far more difficult for Abraham than his own death. The death of Isaac was deadlier to Abraham than his own death would be. Isaac was the one he had waited so long for. Isaac was the one on whom all of Abraham's hopes and dreams rested. Isaac was the child of promise who was supposed to turn into a great people. It would have been much easier for Abraham to give up his own life, knowing that Isaac was still around, than for Abraham to watch Isaac die, let alone be the one responsible for his death. Yet he trusted in God. Luke 9, 23 through 25 says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Are you and I not called to live like Abraham? Are you and I not called to give up our lives, not just a matter of living and breathing and biology existing, but our lives as a matter of ambitions and dreams? We're not merely called to give up our lives at the tip of a spear or gunpoint, but with every moment of every day. Our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions. For three days, Abraham traveled with Isaac and his preparations for the offering. For three days, he did not turn back. And when God gave his son back to Abraham, Isaac was the sacrifice who lived. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. A sacrifice is a sacrifice because it is given up and given over. It is a life forfeited. And that's what happened to Isaac. His life was forfeited. And then God gave it back. And in Genesis 22:15 through 18, we see God's words of blessing over Abraham and Isaac. Isaac didn't just receive his life back. He received life back in abundance. This is God's promise to you as well. If you will make yourself a living sacrifice, he will give your life back to you and it will be better than you ever dared to dream. Not because you will have riches in this life, although you might not because your dreams will come true, although they might. But because the God who provides has provided us with salvation and eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Jesus, who, though he died, is now our living 
sacrifice. So may we enter into the test before us, presenting ourselves as sacrifices, trusting in God to provide as he purifies us, confident that the life we give up will be given back in glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you work all things together for good. Thank you for the way that you, um, even in our plans for this Sunday morning, uh, that we had the privilege of seeing a baptism and, and seeing the way that that lines up with what, what you call us to in your word over and over again. Uh, what we see in the pages of scripture over and over again. That we see substitution, we see resurrection We see death and new life. We see this living sacrifice that we are called to be. And we are called to be a living sacrifice because of the sacrifice that you gave, your very own son, to live and die in our place and to rise again. And what a great hope we have. Father, I pray that you give us strength in the testing. And frankly, God, that strength that we ask for is not our own, uh, but it's a strength that continually looks at you and trusts in you and seeks to do your will, um, knowing that you are bigger than whatever storm we might find ourselves in the middle of. Help us to trust in you in the middle of the storms. Help us to continue to trust in you when things are good, when the test is not in front of us. Um, Keep our faith pure in those times as well. Father, thank you for the example of Abraham. Thank you for the example of this story that we can look to and learn from and we can strive to follow in those footsteps. Um, And those footsteps are footsteps that are faith in you and the salvation that you bring. That we can't bring our own substitute, that we can't bring our own righteousness, uh, but we can bring ourselves and trust you to do something impossible with us. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.